Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast. Hello. <laughs> uh, this is a terrible uh, turnout for a sold-out screening. <laughs> um, we've uh, we've got some bits to give away, which we were going to do at the top, but I guess we'll we'll wait a little bit for that. Um, I've I've brought everyone up. It's going to be a slightly informal chat. Uh, just to remind my guests, we're trying to record this, so if we make sure that whoever's talking at any given moment has a microphone in their hand, we only have two, so there's going to be a lot of uncomfortable pauses while we pass microphones back and forth. Um, has everyone been having a nice festival so far, audience and guests? Yeah. Awesome stuff. Uh, we're going to go straight in. Uh, I'm just going to sort of break these questions up into random order and not worry too much about format. <laughs> Uh, I'll start with Ben because he's the first on my list where's Ben? Ben Parker uh, this is Ben Parker who directed Burial uh, has Burial played yet? No, we're going to be doing a lot of that <laughs> I am barely here um, uh, Ben do you want to just say a couple of words about your film before we get going? Sure, uh, Burial is a World War II thriller um, about the ferrying of Hitler's remains out of Berlin at the end of the war uh, and the people who do that are set upon by lots of creepy people in forests and people with weapons and it gets very dark and nasty quite quickly. Um, the film, and I'll be as oblique as possible, not just because it hasn't played but because this will be going out and obviously these are all sort of advanced screenings for you guys so the listeners at home won't have, won't have seen these films. Um, there's a strong, uh, a strong theme of, of memory, the importance of memory uh, in your film as it straddles time, time periods. Yes. Um, how do you feel the, the sort of the current rise of neo-fascism as it was happening around... Just starting soft. It's fine. Like, like, just like nice, low-ball questions to start us off. <laughs> I wonder where that was going. Uh, memories, memories, neo-fascism. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's the it's the the adage: those who do not remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And yeah, the, and uh, that was actually the quote, at the, the start of the script when I when I did the first draft. Uh, in the film, there's there's a really strong theme throughout of memento mori, which is uh, there's a pendant in the film, and it's half skull, half face, and the story about the I don't know if people know about it, the story about the Roman soldiers who used to come back from war, and they used to shout this at the memento mori, remember death, because they just won a battle. They'd been the victors in a battle, and they needed to be reminded that they were mortal men and they were going to die and they weren't gods. And that runs through the theme quite heavily. That remember the the bad side, remember the dark side, and the whole film thematically is flips between dark and light. And every every time possible, we have a someone half in shadow and half in light. But the, yeah, the neo fascism. We start the film with a neo-Nazi, a, a skinhead, and it starts in 1991. So it's the fall of the Soviet Union, and a survivor from the Second World War is broken into. And, I mean, it's more nuanced than this, but basically she's like, oh, fucking hell, these guys again. Like, I thought we, <laughs> I thought we got Boys rid of these guys. Have to be Nazis. Yeah, and that was, that was my feeling when I was writing the script. You know, guys with tiki torches turning up, and I, and I had the same feelings. Like, oh, these fucking guys i thought we got rid of these guys and they're still around and so a lot of the script is is talking about why we need to remember why we, why it's important to remember these things that we go through in history and the lessons from that 
Um, otherwise, we're doomed to to let these horrible actors back in. Oh, that's like historic actors, not like actual actors. <laughs> Great actors in the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's the that's a lot of the theme. Yeah. Uh, how did you pitch playing a neo-Nazi to your brother? <laughs> <laughs> You've outed my brother in the film. Yeah. Um, easily i've always wanted to chain my brother to a radiator and kill him yeah. <laughs> it's like a dream come true for me uh yeah convincing him to shave his head and get the shit kicked out of him um it, you know he's an actor he loves it yeah <laughs> i didn't put it so i this is my second feature my first feature was like a four-hander in a in a submarine filling up with water dan worked on that he did all the prosthetics and everything on that it was great uh, I didn't put my brother he's a very good actor he's not just my brother who also acts uh, I didn't put him in that film and he didn't talk to me for a year <laughs> so he's in this film straight out the gate he's still talking to me but I did chain him to radiate for three days I mean it's worth watching the film just for that knowing <laughs> knowing that that's my sibling and that I'm torturing him uh, my, my last question for you on my list on my written list um, is just about current political events that happened where historically the enemy of my enemy is my ally and the russians were kind of like sort of de facto on our side during the second world war straight out the gate this, these are deep i'm sorry these are probably the the, the like neo the most serious questions of the entire thing as well so the big fat red elephant in the room yeah yeah russians. so while you're editing this russia go from being a sort of comic history bad guy that we don't need to worry about too much to being the proper bad guy of the world yeah uh I, I i was i was you know, you have all these decisions you have to make creatively in a script and and conscious and sometimes cynical. Do I do I want to be as harsh to the Russians as, as I feel I should be? Because they were not particularly nice at the end of the Second World War. And I had certain voices saying, you know, Russia's a big territory for, you know, DVD sales and film sales. Don't be too harsh. Like, oh, God, okay, I'll go a little bit easy on them. But I was it was really important to me to have a lot of the Polish truth in there, a lot of the Polish characters talking about what, how the Russians acted. Uh, and then after the film was made, after the events in Ukraine, I wish I'd laid into them a little bit more. Yeah, fair enough. They're <laughs> twats. Um, but, you know, I hope the film sells in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing a lot of, yeah, a lot of streaming sells. deals. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's 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 interesting that one of, there's a, there's an actor in the film who's who's Russian, and he came up to me and he said, uh, "Just so you know, the script um, it's not it's not accurate because there was like no rape by the Russian soldiers in the war at all, like no sexual assault. This never happened." I was like, "Cool, okay." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and that's the that's the mentality you're dealing with. A lot of a whole nation thinking one way, uh, you know, propaganda. The obscuring of the truth uh and it was funny to me that 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 guy pointed that out because that's what's going on now you know obscuring the truth and it's still going on so i th i hope that the film's more relevant now actually because it talks about covering up the truth and how dangerous that is thank you <laughs> we're gonna get lighter now i promise yeah, uh i've got eric on my list next uh eric Penikoff directed the leech uh i'm gonna steal this microphone pass it down uh, the leech playing in this screen after this. Uh, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about your picture before we get into the questions? Yeah, it plays at one fifteen. If anyone uh, doesn't have a ticket already and wants to come, I would 
highly recommend it. Uh, but yeah, so the movie is about this Catholic priest played by Graham Skipper here who helps a couple of uh, struggling individuals off the street at Christmas time, tries to reform their lives, and it all blows up in his face. Uh, pretty much inspired by a lot of, uh, you know, I think feelings, experiences we've all had of unwanted house guests overstaying their welcome, the freeloading cousin, the brother-in-law, whoever, you know, people that uh, stick around on your couch a little bit too long. Yeah, I like uh, I like social anxiety horror. It's <laughs> it falls very neatly into that. Um, I thought the film uh, straddled the the balance of like believable charitability and like how awful these people were getting, and managed not to ever feel like his response was out of character. Was was it exactly as written, or did you have to fine tune that in the edit? Like, did you feel like you'd you'd sent them too far at all? There were a couple things in the edit that. I don't know if you remember these that I, I think Jeremy and Taylor do go a little too far in pushing your buttons that were cut out. But for the most part, everything is still there. Um, and, you know, as far as the the charitability and sort of the uh, the barometer for being able to withstand the house guests, you know, once I landed on it being a Catholic priest and him being able to use uh, charity as a way to sort of preach his own word, it was sort of freeing and rewarding to be like, well, I think I can have these people do almost anything. And if this guy really believes that the word of God can save them and that it's his duty to reform their lives, he's going to withstand about anything. So that was, it was fun. Yeah. I like the, uh, the sort of implicit cynicism of religious charity because it's always a, it's always a, a payment for a like time to convert. Um, the, the sort of the religion side of it plays into elements where one of the things I like about religious horror is that it introduces a sort of tacit acknowledgement of the supernatural into proceedings, even if it's not like a big bombastic uh, like supernatural horror film. And you you play with that as well in the in the picture. Uh, basically, the same question as the first question, but about that, like the interplay of the of the semi supernatural and how much you show religion as as a supernatural force for the character, like the the confirmation of him. Uh, of his beliefs was was that something that was uh like a difficult balance for you um i don't know if it's such a difficult balance but i think just you know i have i was raised catholic you know for 16 years i'm not a catholic anymore but having grown up in that and you know you're you're raised to look at a giant crucifix with a dead guy nailed to it and there's just you know there's so many like strong visuals that come with uh catholicism and i think you know when you're a kid and you have an imagination and you like horror movies and you grow up on all these things that lead to this it's your imagination runs wild so a lot of the visuals and some of the more psychedelic stuff that happens in the movie is just kind of you know just having looked at a lot of this imagery for years and sort of seeing how it can become a supernatural thing that plays into the story uh i can't remember which comic it was but to paraphrase catholicism is the most metal of the religions when you realize the dead guy they have nailed to the wall is the boss's son (laughs) that's pretty metal (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, you, have, you have Jeremy here with you. Uh, Graham. Graham. I'm so, fuck. It's, <laughs> it's like 11 in the morning. It's fine. I'm glancing at my phone. <laughs> I, I don't know my own name. Fine. <laughs> Not right now, after the Phoenix last night. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, preparing for the role? Do you were you bringing a, a sort of religious upbringing to it? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm also not religious anymore, but I grew up 
going to church, you know, it was a very big part of my life growing up. I mean, I grew up in Texas, you know, so that's like sort of a major part of your cultural identity is what church you go to. Um, and then I, I went to a Catholic university. Uh, and so, yeah, I had a lot of religious experience. And, and part of the thing that has always fascinated me about religion is kind of that mystical aspect of it where it's just sort of accepted that, yeah, magic's real, you know, and people can resurrect from the dead. And yes, we 100% believe this, you know, but Santa Claus isn't, you know, sort of thing. It's like, it's, it's always been kind of weird to me. So I thought it was going to be interesting to explore this idea of this guy that fully, fully, fully believes so much so that even when all this crazy shit is going down around him, he doubles down on that belief. And he just dives further and further into his faith as the only way for him to try to retain his sanity, which, you know, maybe there's mixed results on that in the film. But, um, yeah, but, you know, Eric and I had a lot of conversations about um, uh, about religion and about, uh, I don't know, like different belief structures and stuff. And, uh, you know, for some of like his monologues and things that he talks about. And uh, so that was kind of interesting to kind of put my head back in that place that it hasn't been in a long time. Um but uh, yeah, so I think it helped definitely to have a religious background, but also have kind of a perspective on it of going, of going. A lot of this stuff is pretty bonkers. Um, yeah. It feels like a like a sunk cost fallacy for him as the as the film goes on. Like if he gives up, then it was all for nothing, and he's a fool. So he like it's just stealing his belief. Yeah, absolutely. He has to. This has to work. This has to be true. Otherwise, what the fuck have I been doing with my entire life? Yeah, it's fantastic. You guys should watch it. Um... I'm going to pass the microphone to Travis. This I've I've chosen the most zigzag path for this microphone. <laughs> uh, this is Travis Stevens. Uh, Travis Stevens directed A Wounded Fawn. Travis, would you tell the audience a little bit about your picture? I will, but before I do that, I just want to thank you and Sam for this podcast because I, I take a drive once a week uh, up north and being in the car and listening to two friends talk about movies with such love for movies makes sitting in LA traffic uh, a, a pleasure. And then uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's really nice. And then Arrow Films, thank you for putting out the films of Taro Ishii, which I fucking love. Uh, <laughs> and then a wonderful finds a horror film. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll we'll start with the with the medium. You you shot on celluloid you shot an indie film on celluloid which is nowadays become kind of received wisdom as a bad idea for financial reasons yeah. uh we, t- we talked about this a little bit the other night um did you f- like obviously other than the beautiful aesthetic that it gives you um was there anything you had to keep in mind while shooting to prevent that from becoming more problematic more difficult for you as a medium to work on yeah i think um oops uh I'll, I'll give two parts of the answer. Uh, I'm not very uh, uh, technically savvy. So for me, uh, it was about just sort of making sure that the crew who was coming on understood that format. Um, and I just would just say for any sort of filmmaker, like, it's not, it's simple. It's a lot simpler than than we were raised to believe. And the sort of, uh, where you're saving in some departments, you put that money over to, to cover the aspect of shooting on film. Uh, and there's a, basically, I think it ended up costing us maybe $20,000, $25,000 more for an end product that was so much closer to 
uh, what I see in my head when I think of a movie, you know, what a movie is. Uh, you don't, there are some sort of logistics things you need to keep in mind. Uh, you need more lights, takes more time to set those lights up, but then that kind of gets offset by everybody's sort of focus on set because, uh, you have more time to rehearse and you're going to shoot less takes. But when you are shooting, everybody is fully focused and fully ready. There's a, there's a bit of a, like a church, uh, aspect to it where nobody's on their phone. Everybody's just sort of paying attention. Do we get it? And, you know, it's just cool. Uh, and then on the, the, the other part of my answer is like, like we're making magic. We're trying to make magic. And like in my mind, if you're like a sorcerer or a witch and you have a cauldron, you're putting like a uh, mandrake root and like I have new, you're putting actual things in there and stirring it around and there's like a chemical reaction happening and the spell comes out of that or the potion comes out of that i don't know how you do that digitally in the same way like what's the digital version of a spell you're like putting you know zeros and ones together there's something about the film running through the camera the film then running through the processing lab the, the film coming back from the lab, whether, you know, mistakes happen or not, there's a life, there's an actual magic to that process. There's a, f a physicality that's uh, happening to those images that I think comes into the, the finished work. Uh, so I just am encouraging everybody to at least, like, talk to somebody because it's not, it's not as daunting as I think we were all raised to believe financially. <laughs> Thank you. Um, obviously, it lends a beautiful aesthetic to the film. Uh, the film has a lot of very striking images in it. Uh, we've worked together a couple of times, and you always have these lovely lookbooks that you, you give out, and they're often some of the some of the boldest and most audacious, like previs images I see. Um, is that your starting point, like before the the words on the page, or are those do those come after the the narrative, or like what's your your process there? I think for me, and probably for everybody, but it's like you got to find your way into the story, whether uh, the scripts come to you or you have an idea for a story. You got to find your your way into it, and and once you have that, whether it's thematic or an image or or a great moment, then it gets easier to start sort of uh, uh, finding other things that sort of help support that. So I, I think for me, my process is what am I trying to say with this movie? And then I just start collecting images either externally, uh, you know, references from films or, or art or music or internally uh, trying to come up with things that support support that theme. Um, and it's just, uh, I feel like we're in this this sort of current age of filmmaking where the plot and what happens in the movie tends to be 90% of the movie versus the cinema that, that I sort of fell in love with when I was younger, where the images were a lot more of the movie. And, and so for me, I, I just uh, am trying to carve out more space for uh, something maybe we haven't seen before. And, and I think that's probably why uh, I lean so heavily on on the images in the in the in the lookbooks and stuff to tell the audience like, 
what happens is not as important to me as how it happens and what we're doing on that screen. Thank you. Um, you came to directing from the world of production. So you've been in the tents and the trenches uh, on this. Has that given you a greater sympathy for the producers that you now work with? And similarly, is there any advice you'd give either young producers or young directors as to how to interact with or what to expect from their collaborators? Are there any producers in the theater? No? One? Do you mind stepping outside? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, my, my understanding or, or how I define that relationship has changed over the years and, and it's constantly being adjusted because uh, when I was working as a producer, I was like, oh, my goal is to create a, a bubble around that filmmaker so that they can fully create without uh, fear of, of their baby being uh, 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 infected by reality. And then that's was and sometimes maybe I need to step in and just sort of help the baby along a little bit. And then, I mean, I think now my feeling is you just need to know to the best of your ability what you need from that relationship. And you need to do the dil due diligence to make sure that that person sitting across the table from you can do what you need. Because there is nothing worse than being in a relationship with someone who cannot give you what you need. You know, whether it's creatively, emotionally, financially. And I'm sure it sucks for the other person, too. Uh, so I, I think moving forward for me in trying to make sure that those relationships are, are, are uh, successful for both people, it's really about analyzing uh, what they've done, what they're capable of doing, do they actually know that there's a, a, a set of responsibilities a producer is responsible for? Uh, there's an actual job there that goes along with the title and, and making sure they can do that job. Thank you. Um, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Carter to keep our zigzag going. The microphone. Thank you. Uh, this is Carter Smith. Carter Smith directed Swallowed. Uh, Carter, would you tell the audience a little bit about your film? Uh, yeah, so Swallowed is a story about two uh, best friends in Maine, a very small town, who agree to deliver a package over the Canadian border, um, and things go horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of a love story, kind of a uh, body horror-esque uh, sort of, you know, it's just one horrible night where everything gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> So, despite some horrible things, it is a beautiful film. Thank you. Uh, I said to you the other night, it felt like looking back through photographs uh, of, of an experience. Uh, what were your points of reference visually when you were starting with the picture? Um, I mean... I mean, like Travis, I guess, I mean, I do a lot of, like, image compilation and and kind of you know just gathering stuff for color and light and I think because I was a photographer for so long before I started making films like I, I kind of um you know I share a lot of images like just still images 
Um, and you know, on this particular film, because we uh, we shot in a cabin in the remote northern Maine where there's no electricity, so I knew that the whole thing would have to be daylight, or not have to be. I mean, we, we could have lit it, but I wanted to shoot at daylight. So I just spent time at the at the camp at the cabin, brought the the T, the DP up there, and and we kind of figured out what the light looked like. And then we also shot four three, which that was like a, a a kind of a choice in terms of like you know there's some horrible stuff that happens um and that i knew i wanted to be an extreme close-up for on faces and i'd love the way that a face looks in a four three aspect ratio um so yeah uh you mentioned your work as a photographer yeah um do you go about composing an image differently when it's uh, a narrative like moving form or do you still approach it as the, the same as you would if it were a series of still setups I think it's pretty similar I mean it's just whatever's pleasing to the you know whatever kind of makes the most sense for what's happening in front of the camera um, I you know in, in photography and st- shooting stills it's like we're selling a shirt or we're selling you know a watch or you know you make your choices based on that and and when you're telling a story you're you're making those choices based on you know whatever is happening emotionally um it's pretty similar uh to be honest and and um i think the dps are maybe a little bit not intimidated but like they're like uh, you know a little bit unsure if i'm gonna um sort of how collaborative i am but like as someone who spent so many years holding the camera all day every day i am a hundred percent i'm just like here take it I, like i don't <laughs> i don't want to touch it i don't want anything to do with it i want to like look through it but i don't want to like be in charge of it um it's so so refreshing <laughs> <laughs> um you have a photographic project side project yeah uh, called all the dead boys yeah uh i feel like maybe there's a like almost a shared universe thing like to some extent going on yeah here. Well, The Swallowed is the very first All the Dead Boys feature film, like officially, um, I, in a weird way. <laughs> I, can, I can say this because the, the I think the password on the link has changed, but I noticed that the uh, the password for the screener contained an All the Dead Boys reference. So. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I shot commercial and, and like celebrity and advertising stuff for so long, and I kind of fell out of love with taking pictures. And... Um, needed to find a way to like enjoy making images again because i would like go and i like i did a you know i did a movie and then i would go back to stills and go back to shooting like perfume campaign you know just stuff that like as nice as it is uh it it wasn't as dark and sweaty and gooey as i prefer um so i started this uh, all the dead boys project just to like play around with making images that were you know disturbing and erotic and kind of uncomfortable and um and also I wanted to learn makeup like I wanted to learn like prosthetics and like I wanted to like play around with like watercolor and you know kind of paints and color and texture and you know as a photographer you know I can hide all the rough bits in the shadow <laughs> like it's you know it's on stills it's a lot easier to kind of get away with uh not being that great at uh prosthetic edges do you have any more all the dead boys pictures planned yeah well now that i know how like i mean it's not easy to make a tiny little movie with a crew of eight people but now that i know how to do it like because i had never done it before like i feel like why would i not do this like 
once a year or like well, at least once every other year not like i already bought all the folding tables and like the coffee <laughs> machine and like i have all the stuff that i feel like i need um so um yeah there will be more all the dead boys movies for sure i like that folding tables are the cornerstone uh, yeah i don't know how, i don't know why that came up first but like I, the chairs the tables the cooler the i mean all the, all of that stuff i've got boxes of craft service stuff that we didn't use <laughs> <laughs> lots of packets of sugar <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah uh i'm uh, going to hand the microphone over to Jonas, who directed hazard uh would you tell our audience a little bit about hazard uh sure uh, hazard is um a high concept buddy comedy set uh, in one car on a very hot day in Antwerp basically my hometown very nice um, yeah you self-imposed some filmmaking restrictions upon yourself with uh, with how the movie is is shot in this car um, was that in the script or was that something that you brought yourself and was there any time particularly that you regretted making this very cool rod for your own back <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's a it's a script by Trent Haga, an American writer, and it opened with even before the story started, it said, uh, "Note: the camera never leaves the hero's car," and I was basically sold at that point. Whatever the story was going to be, <laughs> I was like, "This is very interesting. It's like a, a lifeboat situation." Uh, but I took it to the extreme that I said, "Okay, what does that mean?" Um, for me, it meant that the lens of the camera could be anywhere in the car, uh, seen as a three D model. So not just the windows, but it could be anywhere uh, which meant we had to build a lot of stuff uh but for mostly like i i i um i shot stuff stuff i shot stuff in cars before and it's kind of it's very um restricting so i came very prepared for this movie it was completely storyboarded so that that went well but there's one scene in it where we drive to um a tunnel that's basically a pedestrian tunnel under uh, a river in antwerp but that tunnel is for pedestrians it doesn't allow vehicles with gasoline so we had to build an uh, electric version of our car. Basically, it, it got pulled and, and pushed by a, a golf cart. But also, <laughs> it's it's a building from the 30s, um, which meant the elevators break down constantly. And they weren't fixed until the day that our crew was upstairs waiting. And now, I, I do remember talking to the producers. like they, They're like, we could use another tunnel. This is not worth it. It's going to be like 90 seconds in the movie. But we did it anyway. And, and now I'm happy. But that was the moment that I thought, this is stupid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There's a uh, there's a very memorable shot from inside the exhaust pipe of the car that uh, I assume that was like one of the one of the things you had to request was made for your for yeah. your filming. Yes, <laughs> that was the most contested shot um, of the movie. That was our really conversations of hours on the phone. Producers demanding that shot uh, is is removed should we say what it is or not really well, you you can you can it's up to you it's a it's not a narrative spoiler well, but it's an event spoiler it involves a, a human liquid basically <laughs> uh yeah and i remember my producer making the point all of your movie he says this is a very explicit image in a suggestive movie and i'm like this is not a suggestive movie the whole movie is explicit this doesn't work so it's in there and i'm very happy it's i mean it, it looks amazing it's a Thank you. It, it feels very like polished and and big and it's you know a comparatively small film it's an independent film um how did you go about making a movie that looks like it's a huge budget film particularly with some of the set pieces which i don't know how it, uh how much you want to reveal about about some of those filming scenarios but how how did you go about working out where to spend that money to make it look like that 
Um, I was afraid that um, I, I, I admired the genre of uh, the, the one location thriller, but they do, after an hour, usually run into the problem of where do we go from here, literally. So I kept that in mind the whole time. I was like, I can use my city because we do have um, four windows we can look through. So I made sure that there was constantly color and movement in the city around us and, and little stories happening there. So that, hap- that, that gives it a, a grander feeling, I hope. And by the end, I did realize that if we spend 99% of the movie in the car, then the moment we, we finally leave it, it needs to feel big and epic and like, like you've been in a claustrophobic situation for that long. So we found, I think, uh, a visual way to do that and to go from like the deepest, smallest place in Antwerp to the, the biggest, highest point in Antwerp, basically, which involved... Um, yeah, a whole studio setup uh, which involved drones, but hopefully it's not that expensive a shot. But because you've been so contained the whole movie, maybe that's why it hopefully feels that way. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I've kind of run out of pre-prepared questions, so I'm going to turn it over to the audience. Does anyone in the audience have a question for any one of our fantastic guests? I will be repeating your question into the microphone. Uh, the question is, there's a lot of planning that goes into movies, uh, but how often did happy accidents occur uh, during the filming? And I'm assuming that's a blanket question to everybody. So if anyone in particular wants to answer, we'll get the microphone to you. Here we go. Microphone I'll let Graham tell the story. Um, so when we were filming The Leech, uh, the house where we filmed everything, we were also staying in. Uh, and we... Uh, we're all sleeping in our rooms that our characters were sleeping in, which was extra weird for me because my character's room in this movie is, like, covered with crosses and crucifixes everywhere. So I was, like, sleeping in, in this room all night. It was weird. Um, but anyway, uh, there's a scene in the movie where there's kind of a struggle at, at the uh, entrance to my room. And um, it, the happy accident was that uh, my door completely came off the hinges of this room that we were renting. Uh, and so the door like slammed open and I mean, it looks great on film and of course, uh, you know, it, it made it in, but the, uh, uh, downside to that was that then my room didn't have a door anymore for the rest of the shoot. Uh, but, but yeah, I guess that was, that was kind of a fun moment. That's what sandbags are for. (laughs) And I feel like, but I also feel like film, like accidents happen like every day, all day, you know, whether, whether it's the light not being like you wanted it to be or a performer, you know, an actor not hitting their mark and then having some new blocking figured out. Like, I feel like that happens constantly, no matter how much you plan. I'm going to pass the microphone down to Travis. I feel like, at least for me, like, because you've made the movie so many times in your head before you're actually on set filming it, you're craving a happy accident. You know, something unexpected, something that's going to bring some life to it because it's, this is probably a terrible analogy, but it's like if you've masturbated too much, you just need like a new new thing, like just something new to keep it fresh. Uh, so we, uh, But like because everybody's trying to do it exactly as it's described or whatever, it's very hard to break through to get that, that thing. So it's like your job to maybe take a pause and say, 
hey, let's fucking just do something crazy and just see what happens. And then in, in the case of a wounded fawn, um, there are times where if you're working with something that's outside of your control, like we have a, a scene in the movie where um, uh, the lead actress is covered in snakes, uh, which is a little nerve wracking. But then we're rolling on these long dialogue scenes and then the snakes start like, oh, what's that boom mic? And start going up. And we're like, holy fucking shit, it looks like the snake is like talking to the guy too. This is like wonderful. Uh, you know, so I, I think anything that is out of your control can potentially bring one of those little things that, that'll just open uh, the artifice of what you're doing up in, in an interesting way. Not with venomous snakes, hopefully. It depends what you can afford. <laughs> I, wor- I worked with a, a, a giant centipede once, and the guy handling the giant centipedes said, this was with your lovely wife, by the way, um, the guy, uh, we kept on asking, it's not poisonous, is it? It's not poisonous. And the guy said, no, 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 it's not poisonous. Uh, and then it got loose accidentally got loose in the studio and went everywhere and he went stay away <laughs> and the producer was like it's not poisonous no it's venomous <laughs> <laughs> it's the most jobs worth if you person. if you find it you can eat it but yeah. do not let it eat you yeah. <laughs> and travis i wanted to say that i went home after watching your film and and washed my kitchen sink oh. i did i yeah, I, I didn't think that anybody would have been in my kitchen but i just felt like i needed to wash it just just in case <laughs> If you've seen the film, you know what. We also did a thing with um, centipedes, uh, famously, a while back, and uh, the guy who was there to wrangle the centipedes was an enthusiastic man uh, with rubber-tipped tongs and a very, very dangerous animal that we were putting up flimsy guards around (laughs) while it ran around this set. They're weirdly terrifying. Yeah, not weirdly. <laughs> he gave us loads of shed skins so I could mould them and make rubber versions for the actors to handle. Yeah. Uh, and the skins came apart when they were being demoulded, so it was like picking bits of... Oh, it was fucking horrible. <laughs> I, ha- I, had t- I took one of the props home that hit- this thing was crawling over, and for like months afterwards I thought it might have laid eggs in there, and so I had to get rid of it and burn it in the garden. <laughs> Uh, another question from the audience. As um, filmmakers, do you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? And if not, what is your biggest fear? Uh, the question is, as filmmakers, do you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? And if not, what is your biggest fear? Uh, every day. Just every day on set, every day in life, pretty much. Yeah, it's nerve-wracking. Yeah, I mean, even, even you're invited to a festival that you love, and you're like, what if they're like, what does this idiot think they're doing? You know? And... You, I think, at least for me, I'm like constantly trying to be like, well, you, you are making the movies, like you did it, so you're not an imposter. But of course, that feeling is hard to get past. I, f- I feel like if you don't have imposter syndrome, you you're the most deserving of imposter syndrome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yes is the answer. I mean, I think, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I'm always uh, I'm always the most nervous with the crew because uh, you know, I mean, I've worked in production before. I've kind of done a couple of different roles, but I always feel like I'm the person on set that's probably been on set the least. You know, it's like everyone else on the crew. It's like this is their their life, their full time job. Like you know, I'm making a movie once every couple three years. So you know, unless you're 
making a short film or doing a commercial or something in between, which I think you should. It's, you know, it feels like you're always showing up, uh, shaking some of the cobwebs off. And it's also like people just, I mean, you spend so much time hearing no, you know, from different people for different reasons. And so like, that's, I, I find that the most difficult is like all of that bullshit of like just hearing people say no <laughs> they say there's there's a certain number of no's you have to go through for every every film you get made yeah I, it's a really high number <laughs> yeah um any more questions oh we have one here <laughs> uh, I'm going to rephrase that because the microphone's going to pick that up. Uh, uh, long-time listener and friend of the podcast, uh, Andre, uh, who is German, asked, how bad do the Germans get it in burial? <laughs> yeah, I got, a, I got a, a, one of the producer notes, I won't say which one, uh, said that... Um, she wasn't sure whether people knew who Hitler was and that we needed to put more stuff in the film to explain who Hitler was. Uh, <laughs> that was my favourite note about the Germans. <laughs> no, I think... Um, I, I. It's a weird thing to answer as related to the Russian side of things. I give everybody kicking. I give the... Ev- every side of the coin gets a kicking. Um the German characters, I was interested in showing um, some of the, the the effects of what happens when they when they knew that they were, were losing. It's at right at the end of the war. And so that was interesting to me to see how the different characters reacted to this fact that it was, go- it was done pretty much. And so I don't think that they're treated very badly. There are nasty characters as well as sort of more sympathetic soldiers. Um, so uh, you know, it's interesting. You, you know, let me know what, you, what what your opinion is of it when you see it. Yeah, but how does Hitler come across? Yeah, Hitler, <laughs> I could have been a bit more harsh on Hitler. <laughs> no, I. I yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the Hit, Hitler's dead, so uh, I can I I can do quite a lot to him. He's a corpse in it, so. Um, <laughs> spit on him piss on him it was a really weird vibe actually because um the there are german actors there are some russian speaking actors but there are a lot of estonian actors in it so because we shot in estonia so so you'll be offended probably because there are estonians playing germans so <laughs> apologies <laughs> I um I remember hearing a rumor that someone stole the puppet Christ from the set of The Passion of the Christ, the animatronic breathing crucified Jim Caviezel. Um, oh, I have no you, idea where Hitler went. <laughs> do you know where your <laughs> people it's, keep asking me? It's eleven a.m. Do you know where Hitler is? Yeah. <laughs> I people keep asking me this, and I I really I thought, oh god, I don't know where Hitler is, and that's a really horrible thing to no, to not know. <laughs> But I, when it, he turned up, he was a prop, you know, a, a, a corpse prop. He got his own, own flight over from Sweden. And when he arrived, people were saying, Hitler's here. Oh <laughs> Everybody got, like, you know, freaked out. And then when he was on set, he, it was, it was on set. It was a really weird, ominous vibe on set as well. 
just because of who who it looks like, and it looks like him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no one defaced it like the uh, like the waxwork. I, it, it did disappear on regular occasions, you know, around the back of the set. You know, I don't know what they're doing to it. <laughs> <laughs> Were they smoking with it? Were they? I don't know. Lots it was of it improper sort of t- selfies. Turned t- turn into weekend at Bernie's, but with Hitler. You know. <laughs> I mean, if you can find it, you could just make that movie now. Everybody wants to make that film with me. (laughs) Um, Any any more questions? I feel like... Oh, yeah, fantastic. What can be done to address the gender imbalance? Are you talking about the panel, specifically? I, this, it did, the, the question was, what can be done to address the gender imbalance? It did occur to me two days ago that, <laughs> that I have a very white male audience uh, 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 panel. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we have, a, we have male, all male filmmakers up here. Uh, I, I mean, I think the thing is, male directors, I'm just going to answer for all you guys for a second. Uh, Uh, male directors are I don't feel there's an an enormous amount of responsibility for male directors to ensure gender balance with directors because I think it's totally fair for all directors to be kind of in it for themselves Um, from a production standpoint I think it's really important and I think that it does need to be addressed Um, and I think that uh, there's also it behooves writers and directors to to ensure that there's that diversity in the projects that they're doing. Um, if anyone wants to jump in and save me from the hole I'm digging. <laughs> no, uh, it's a great question, and the answer is like really simple. It's just asking that question at the beginning of the process. And and if everybody knows, like, hey, this is a goal, whether you're a producer, whether you're hiring department heads or whatever, if you go into it saying, hey, I need to, uh, you know, expand what i'm who i'm looking at and and maybe make sure i don't have any blind spots and just because i might not know a lot of filmmakers in in, you know this part of the world or this gender or whatever you just go and you actively seek out people who can maybe help expand the options you're looking at yeah i think as as a director there's, there's there's things that you choose you people you can pick but as a writer director as well i it's important for me to write good parts for for women and and that's something that i enjoy doing and 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 making sure that they're there not absent in the script that 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 that's brought over and then with working with people yeah like travis said just you know being open to to whoever and and rooting out the elements that might be not showing you that that might be withholding options and saying well is that everybody? Is that everybody we looked at? Because I want to work with everybody, yeah. Uh, in the particular case of, of my film, when I got the script, which was actually set in uh, LA, uh, taking it to Antwerp, my hometown, that gave me an opportunity to look at every part, big or small, and not just to have, just examine if, if the gender could be flipped, but also Antwerp is a very multicultural city, so uh, the white thing was another thing, like, does this have to be a white person? And uh, and we ended up with um, a portrait of a city that's probably much more true than what it would have been if I had just taken the LA version, which is its own thing, obviously. Just gen- gently, oh, your thoughts on that. 
gently offering the mic down the line. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, we shot my film in rural Maine and tried really hard to find queer people and, you know, people that kind of reflected what the story was about. And, you know, it wasn't always easy. I mean, we I ended up with gay actors playing gay characters, which was great. Um, you know, but sadly our crew looked a lot like this panel <laughs> yeah but it wasn't for it wasn't for lack of trying actually you know we we you know there's there was a very i mean we we worked with all um like a local crew um and yeah i mean we 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 tried and we couldn't afford to bring anyone in <laughs> sort of the same thing as what you're saying when i shot this movie in rural indiana we also made it pre-vaccine during the pandemic so it was a very tight-knit group of people where there's a, a lot of people I do want to work with that I just really wasn't able to hire in outside people but also this is the first movie that I've also produced myself and working with my wife on this it's is uh, definitely the most women I've ever worked with compared to my first movie so it's um, certainly something as a producer now as well that is at the forefront of what I'm thinking about I mean yeah I think I, I agree a lot with what Travis said it's about setting intention and I think that if everybody sets that goal and sets that intention just in general in the film industry I think that we'll see more and more and more inclusion of that stuff um, and and you know like others have said too it just helps to make it more realistic to what the world is actually like so yeah I think also just encouraging people to get into the industry from all different backgrounds as well because as you guys said it, sometimes it can be hard to find those people but that's because I think those barriers to entry are so early and have been so well like ingrained in the way that the industry is laid out that opening up those like getting rid of those barriers at the beginning means that down the line it is going to be easier to find a diverse crew and and to make sure that voices are representing are being represented by the people who actually are those voices we've gone serious at the end <laughs> well that's that's what i mean it's come full circle it's nice <laughs> Um, I, I think I think we're kind of wrapping up. Um, please thank my guests. Uh, oh, I have one thing uh, for you, and I'm going to play it off my phone. Uh, there's a, a member of the team conspicuous by their absence. Hello, Fright Fest Arrowheads. Dan was brilliant, wasn't he? Uh, amazing interviews, wonderful questions. Uh, that that couldn't have gone any better. I am recording this in advance, so um, you know I'm not secretly hiding in the audience or about to burst out of a cake. Dan, you did set up the cake thing, right? So it's not just uh, me saying a, a weird thing about cake. That's that's a punchline to something that you set up earlier. Okay, good. Uh, in that case. All that's left for me to say is, and we can all do this at the same time if you want, thank you so much for listening, and we promise to be more professional next time. Bye-bye.